Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today we have an awesome guest, Aslan Tariq. He is the Chief Clinical Officer at Madrina. In this episode, we talk about what is a physiatrist, how he and his team in Madrina approach pain management, how they utilize telehealth to help people all around the country, and what brought him to entrepreneurship. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Aslan, how are you doing? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, so for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background and history of you? Yeah, happy to. Uh, so my name is Dr. Aslan Tariq. I am a board-certified physiatrist. Uh, most people have no idea what physiatry is. Uh, physiatry is especially that is another name for that is physical medicine rehabilitation. Uh, it's a very unique specialty that manages patients uh, with uh, disability. Uh, it could be from a stroke. It could be from a knee injury. It could be back issue. Uh, we put mostly manage patients uh, post-acute from the hospital stay onwards to home and out, outside of that too. And we take care of patients from all ages. It could be pediatric to geriatric. Uh, it's a pretty broad specialty. And I am the chief clinical officer for Madrina. Uh, Madrina is a, is a large organization that has uh, 600 plus uh, physicians and providers. We're in 43 states and 1,200 different locations in multiple hospitals and multiple settings. Um, and that's what keeps me pretty busy. That's amazing. I mean, um, to be honest with you, I've never heard of the specialty either, and I'm in medicine, but it sounds like we should be hearing about you because you guys are literally taking care of everyone at the after after their uh, um, in like the ambulatory setting. Yeah, and it's a very small specialty. It's like less than uh, ten thousand of us, and uh, if you imagine, like it's close to two hundred thirty, four hundred fifty thousand internal medicine. So it's a very very small specialty. And uh, it's, it's kind of a secret. The secret is out. It, it, ten, it Initially, like maybe a decade ago, it wasn't that uh, competitive. But now it's one of the most competitive uh, residencies out there because it, it, it really is like catering to a population that is usually not taken care of. And it's you just hand off to the, you know, the primary care doctors. And these are complex patients that have complex needs. And we basically like the way that I describe to my family and friends, actually, I don't think anything my mom knows what I do, but like what we try to like basically tell, because I'm not a physical therapist, nothing against therapist. I'm a physician who focuses on rehab. It's a very interesting concept for most people to understand. I'm not a surgeon, but I can manage all orthopedic issues. I'm not a neurologist, but I can manage strokes. It's a really unique thing. Uh, the way that I describe to people is, uh, you know, we're really uh, basically optimizing care and improving quality of life. So we're quality of life physicians. Um, and that could be for any condition, which is really unique. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, so do you, do you guys, uh, is there any overlap with primary care? Do you guys take on patients as primary care or are you just solely focused on uh, recovery? That's a great question. Actually, yeah, historically, we have been the primary care for the patient. So in an acute rehab setting, so let's just say, you know, someone has a stroke or has a spinal cord injury or, you know, some, some significant like ALS or MS, people know about that, those conditions. When they show up in the hospital, once they're, out of the acute phase of like, you know, you got to, you know, basically make sure you're alive and you start doing some therapy, the transition to acute rehab hospital. And that's where we are the primary care for the patient. And then once they transition from there to home, a lot of times we become their primary care physician. 
So we work along with the rheumatologist and the neurologist and the orthopedic surgeon, but a lot of times the primary care physicians don't have the knowledge of like these complex conditions. Uh, we might get their help here and there, but it, it, it truly depends on the physiatrist. A lot of physiatrists, like they end up subspecializing in brain injury or sports medicine or pain management, what I did. Uh, and But you still get to manage a pretty big continuum of care. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great segue into um, your com- the company that you're part of, Madrina. Um, from what I understand, you guys primarily deal with pain management. And do you want to go into kind of what you guys do and how you guys do it? Yeah, so I mean, this kind of conditions, disabilities, you name the disability, has some pain, pain along with it. It could be neuropathic, as you probably dealt with, or or it could be even vascular, or it could be orthopedic, it could be rheumatological, it could be brain-related. This pain is complex, obviously, so not just like an organ or, uh, you know, sim- you know, a, you know condition-based. It could be very, very broad into like psychological parts of it and, you know, social uh, economic too. So it's very complex, but... From our specialty, from specifically in our practice, our goal is to optimize rehab post-discharge from the hospital, which is really important for the next value-based, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, value-based systems because we're reducing cost of care. We're inexpensive, we're not surgeons, we're not cutting people open, we're not prescribing crazy expensive medications. We are basically helping your therapist colleagues to improve outcomes. We're reducing the barriers to care the patients have, which a lot of times is pain is, hey, I just had a knee replacement or a back surgery. What do I do? How do I do therapy if I have pain? So it's not a matter of just like putting them on the Dilaudid or the fentanyl patches. There's actually multinodal ways of helping pain out and attacking it from different modalities, which I'm sure you'll talk a lot about. But And then using technology, like how do we me- measure those outcomes? Like pain is so subjective. It's not an objective measure a lot of times. So how do you manage that? How do you optimize that? So of us, of all of us, 600 in plus of us, like we pain management is a daily thing we do. And uh, it's, it's basically the outcome-based. It's not just comfort-based. That's the big difference in what we do. It's not just to make you happy. It's to make you do more. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, you touched on so many uh, words. As a pharmacist, you're really pulling at my heartstrings <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, right. I mean, uh, I mean, there, there's so many questions, but let's just kind of go down the list. Uh, you talked about uh, multimodal therapy. Do you want to kind of go into what multimodal therapy is? Yeah, for sure. You know, that's a key thing that I learned in my training. And that's as part of the chief clinical officer of the company. That's what I focused on in our training and onboarding because we had to standardize our practice uh, because we have physicians that come from all sorts of, you know, hospitals and systems and experience is, you know, especially in the patient population we deal with is mostly elderly, senior, 65 plus. You can't just put them on a standard medicine. You know, and a lot of times you have post-op ortho. Oh, take the Norco and tramadol and you can't do that. You have to really focus in on their metabolism, their uh, their fat content, their activity level, their previous side effects of medications. There's so many complex things. You can't just like good cutter pain medication. So, but at the same time, to broad, you know, describe it. You know, I see uh, medications uh, being prescribed for the wrong dosage or the wrong uh, diagnosis. The biggest one is wrong diagnosis. You know, for example, someone's on uh, flexural for spasticity without trying baclofen. Uh, someone's on uh, hydrocodone for neuropathy when you haven't tried gabapentin or lyrica. I mean, and again, uh, because pain is complex, it could be the muscular side, the bone, it's the nerve. Like, how do you manage that? And then how do you also create expectations from the patient? Because some patients, uh, I have many of them who say, their expectations, I, I don't want any pain. I want zero out of 10 pain. But if you create the expectation in the beginning that this is to help you progress, to progress in therapy, and it's not necessarily bring the pain down to a zero, 
uh, then you get great that relationship and then you fine tune things. There's no like one dose of gabapentin that fixes everybody. It's like, how do we start low, go slow? How do we um, manage therapy modalities, electric stimulation, uh, you know, VR, AR, like all the stuff that helps. And there's a lot of data on how AR can help with pain. So anyway, there's, that, that stuff is like, you know, what my bread and butter is every day is that discussion. Uh, and it's not necessarily, there's a pill for that. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, and you mentioned AR VR, like how do you guys incorporate that into your practice? Because that's, um, those are things that are interesting that are coming out and people are starting to really look into it uh, with the metaverse and all these other buzzwords going on. But I think, I personally think there's a huge play for VR and AR in medicine. And I would love to hear how you guys are using it in your practice. Yeah, so I mean, because it's so new and you can imagine our patient population is geriatric and they barely have a smartphone and they're barely using that stuff, but I think they're they're getting more and more used to it. We use some LiDAR technology and some, some initial AR kind of stuff, uh, mostly to uh, figure out balance and coordination and things like that, and to give people direct feedback that you are at a risk for fall. And then based on that that information, giving them the appropriate you know exercises. So that's kind of the beginning of it. But in in my in my outpatient clinical practice, I'm using some of this stuff. And you know historically we used biofeedback, and that was a big thing for pain. Uh, that's what VR and AR is. It's basically like a biofeedback slash meditation slash visual uh, cues about like you know how do I control these sensations of pain because. You know, like I said, pain is complex. We could talk about pain for hours. Is that it, it ends up at, uh, affecting your 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 brain, your you know the central system. Uh, and it, it's, to break that cycle, you need tech, you need psychology, you need medication. So, long story short, there is definitely a need for that. There is an issue of access, um, issue of uh, compliance, issue of reimbursement. Uh, when, if, and when that happens, I think is going to happen. Uh, because there's so much push against medications and surgery that it's going to become a bigger part of our practice. But at this moment, it's beginning stages. That's, I mean, that's really interesting to me. I mean, I think that's, um, um, and that kind of, I mean, you're completely right. I mean, um, I think it was CMS, right, that released their new guidelines on pain management. Is it CMS or I can't remember? There's a lot of acronyms out there. Uh, and, um, you know, they're really trying to push cognitive behavior therapy, right? CB, CBD, CBT. Um, and initially when it came out, there was a lot of backlash because it was like, oh, you're stigmatizing us and all that stuff. It, so like in your practice, do you guys use, uh, it sounds like you guys are doing cognitive behavioral therapy and kind of what is, when you tell patients that, like, what is their first initial reaction? Are they, do they kind of trust you or are they just kind of go to the other end? Because I've seen more of the, hey, you don't trust me. I'm in pain. Why aren't you believing me? Yeah, uh, you know, I, the, it's a complex question. I think it really st boils down to trust, and you mentioned that word. I think it's that trust you build with the, the from my perspective, with the patient about that I'm on your side, I'm your advocate, I'm first is do no harm. I'm trying to do what I can to help you, but I'm not gonna be able to answer this complex issue in one meeting, and just me giving you an injection or just giving you this magic medicine is gonna fix everything. Uh, a part of that is the relationship and the partnership I have to create with you. And I think that's the thing that I, I make in the very beginning of my patient because then the expectations are now like, this is my cure and, you know, I'm going to, you know, this is this is my fix. I don't want to be that savior for them. I want to be that partner for them. So when that relationship is formed and then I start talking about like, what is the evidence behind CBT? 
What's the evidence behind acupuncture? People ask me about what's the, what can I use CBD? You mentioned you know, <laughs> that a little bit. Uh, is there any evidence behind that? I'm like, you know, like there is evidence, but you're not going to get the CBD you need in a, in a gas station. You know, like, and the dosage and that kind of stuff is not going to happen. But at the same time, I know in the back of my head, as you probably know as well, like placebo is a very strong effect. I use placebo any day, all day. If 30% of what I do is placebo. And there's a very interesting study that came out. You talked about the pain stuff is that uh, acknowledging someone's pain and the, uh, the pathology that might be related to in itself reduces their pain level. They start thinking that it's not in my head, it's actually happening. So it's that acknowledgement, that relationship, that evidence base and multinodal stuff that combined with that, that helps. If I tell the patient that I'm going to fix everything, not true. Hey, I have a great therapist who works with chronic pain and this kind of condition. Let's start that. Yeah, no, I love, I love the way you put partner. And I think that's something that unfortunately we're kind of moving away from right in healthcare because we're just forced to kind of only see parts of the patient and this and that. And they're, you know, we're all fragmenting ourselves and each other. And there's just a lot of things going on. And I love that you are saying that, Hey, we're a partner with you. I'm going down this journey with you. Not necessarily. I, I'm not feeling the same pain, but I understand where you're coming from. And I can't tell you how powerful that is for a patient to hear, especially that is in chronic pain, just to be acknowledged, like, Hey, I understand that you're not just seeking drugs. And I understand that, you know, you are just looking for help and I'm here to help you. And let's just kind of, let's, let's kind of sit down and talk about it. And you're absolutely right. A lot of times, I mean, that's all people really want, you know, uh, being a pharmacist, we see, I mean, we're usually way more available than you guys are. So we hear a lot of things for patients and half the times I, I go into a room where they're like, oh my God, this, this person is really, uh, you know, they're going to be a little difficult or this and that. And I go in and all I do is listen and guess what? They're, they're fine and they and they, all they just want to do is just talk. And I think in our healthcare system doesn't allow for that partnership anymore. It doesn't. And it's unfortunately getting worse, like you said. I mean, there was a, a recent article I read about from JP Morgan when they try to get in the healthcare space. Uh, and they, just like, you know, Amazon did and they kind of pulled back as well. But uh, JP, uh, JP Morgan uh, went in and then they came back out and then went back in. And they realized that the reason that they weren't successful is that their uh, time of visit between the patient and the provider was too short. And they increased the time to 45 minutes and all of a sudden like they started having better outcomes. So that's the key thing is like, if you force physicians and practitioners to get you know, stuff done in five minutes, like you're not gonna create the relationship. It becomes like, uh, it's become like a, a very transactional thing yeah. versus like the, uh, as a practitioner and you as a pharmacist, I, I think of my background because I grew up in uh, Pakistan and, uh, you know, we call that Hakim. Hakim is basically, a, you know, a person in the community that is not a doctor, but like they've learned through generations and they're the one person, the, fam the family, everybody trusts that he's going to basically help out. And you go in, you get a console, they tell you about stuff. Uh, I mean, a lot of stuff they do is like kind of uh, off, but the point is that this relationship we create, but nowadays like people have, uh, they don't have a relationship with the provider. And I think that's where virtual, virtual care kind of gets tricky I'm a big fan of virtual care with the access of stuff, but it's hard to create a relationship with someone like virtually, you know, we've gone through the zoom uh, era and you're still in it. Uh, you can, but it's more difficult, especially for the older people, especially for the people in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they want that relationship. No, I completely agree with you there. And um, yeah, it's just sad to see like what's happening and, you know, and it's, you know, and you know, like that JP Morgan study that you just said, like, you know, they increased it to 45 minutes, they sell better outcomes. Every single person who's in clinical medicine is just like, duh, right? Because 
we, we, you have time to kind of break into things. And a lot of times when you're interviewing a patient, sometimes the patient doesn't know. I mean, how many times have we been a patient or you've been, a, you know, people that are listening to have been patient, you go into the doctor and you leave the appointment and be like, oh man, I forgot to ask him this. I forgot to ask him this. I forgot to ask them this. And then you're like, oh, maybe I'll email them or call them and they're busy and this and that. And you just forget about it. And then a couple of months later, it turns into a much bigger problem. And you're like, oh crap. And then the doctor or somebody's like, I mean, I've been in, in the, in the clinic where, you know, somebody's like, why didn't you tell this to us last time? They're like, oh, we forgot, you know, and it's just all a matter of time, right? It's, if you have more time with the patient, you are able to uncover way more than if you, like you said, if you're in there for only five, 10 minutes. Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I love these studies because they really hone in on what you're saying is that there's a study, there's a direct correlation between the shorter the, the visit is, the more prescriptions are being, are prescribed. Wow. Wow, that's that's pretty insane. I I I would love to have maybe after this, maybe you can send me. That I study. will I will share that to you because that was really interesting. And then the length of you know visits going to get shorter and shorter because I think because you're just like oh well, uh, you have some nausea here's a medicine you have yeah. some headache here's a medicine and here okay I'm done next next patient and then some patients are like that in which they don't feel satisfied that they had a good visit until they leave with the prescription and that's the barrier that I have to constantly break to my patients that no just I didn't give you a prescription that should be a success for you. Uh, that, you know, we are trying to find a way without it. Uh, so, uh, but some, some patient like, oh, that was a horrible visit. I didn't get a Norco or something, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that we need to retrain, I think not only just patients, but also physicians and really retrain what healthcare really is right now. I mean, this may sound ironic coming from a pharmacist, you know, there's always a pill for something, right? But throughout my, my, my schooling, we were told to take people off of medications because we have way too many people on way too many medications. And but right, like you said, I mean, I've talked to patients too, where they were looking for something and the doctor's like, no, we're not going to give that to them. You don't need it. Like, it, you know, try this or, you know, it's this. And they're like, well, you're like the worst doctor ever and this and that. Like, and then they just go to the next person and get what they want. But that first person was like caring about them and really looking at everything. But yeah, I think it's just neat. We need to just retrain just the whole system in general. Yeah, and you have to use technology and providers like us and, you know, I think on the ground level, um, that's what I think a lot of times the the VCs and the PEs and those kind of things end up forgetting is that you need that clinical input. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, talking about medication adherence, I mean, that's a big thing that I'm focusing on now, especially with remote therapeutic monitoring, remote physician, uh, phys physiological monitoring, remote patient monitoring is that uh, two thirds of uh, Americans with prescriptions are not adherent to medications. Uh, which is an insane number if you think about it. And the data, I, I'll share this with you, says uh, 300 billion um, avoidable costs to U.S. healthcare because of, uh, you know, these 125,000 premature deaths because of non-adherence. So some people will get off medication that they need to be on, and many people are on medication they don't need to be on. So if you don't have that pharmacist and physician and provider partnership, like, it doesn't work. My best days of my training, if I think back at it, were my residency in acute hospital in Chicago, in Wheaton, where every day our pharmacist was with us when we rounded. And we would go sit down with the pharmacist and I would go through the Coumadin doses, the Lovenox doses. I was learning from them. They were learning from me. And they ended up like, because I love them so much, they um, uh, made me the resident of the year award from, the, from them because they're like, why don't most doctors like talk about this? Um, but you have to have that multinodal way of doing it. You can't just do it by yourself. Yeah. And well, thank you uh, for that. I really appreciate that. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I completely agree with you, right? I mean, we all are, as much as we like to be generalists, as I think most healthcare professionals 
like to be generalist mainly because we're forced into that generalist mindset. Uh, but I think that, you know, when we, like you mentioned, we're kind of doing it to ourselves, right? We have, we have people out there that are willing to help or there are specialists out there that we can tap into. It's just, I mean, there's two things, right? A, you don't know they exist or you don't know what they're able to do, right? That's one problem with pharmacy is um, like in your hospital, they were available and a lot of hospitals are just, kind of, we're just kind of sitting in the corner in a room with a locked door and you just hear from us when, you know, the order is wrong, right? <laughs> you know, so, um, and so I think that there's something for, at least from our profession, we need to do a better job of um, showcasing kind of like, you know, what you saw during your residency. Um, and then, you know, like people like yourself who are, you know, in a specialty and, you know, can help. And, you know, sometimes I think there's like a lot like, oh, no, this is my patient. I'm going to take care of it. But sometimes you just need to ask for help. Be like, hey, this person is really good at this. You know, we, let's send you there. But I completely agree with you. We need to work together and not work against each other. Um, but I'd love to get into like kind of the virtual versus in-person. So you in your in your practice, in your company, you guys do a lot of virtual stuff. Like how do you guys how do you how do you personally balance that out? Do you. Do you try to get people in or are you just letting people decide which way they want to see you? So um, it's, it's a complex question as well. I think for me, it was all about how do I help out with the disparity and the unequal care being provided? That was my number one goal. It wasn't about like, you know, revenue or about like, uh, you know, sure, but quality and stuff is important. But specifically, we started a telemedicine program for patients who are amputees. They're in a lot of times small towns, they had uh, diabetes and they had an amputation, gangrene, that kind of stuff. And they don't have, have access to a vascular surgeon, they don't have access to uh, a physiatrist, let alone, you know, other doctors. And they have a long wait time. And the only reason they don't have a prosthesis and they're basically wheelchair bound, not driving, not working is because they don't have a prescription for that. Or they don't have a doctor's note that says they need an amputation or a prosthesis. That's as simple as that. But insurance companies are not going to pay for a prosthesis. Literally, when someone doesn't have a leg, like it's not even a subject, subjective thing. Objectively, I don't have a leg, but they won't cover for, for that. Uh, but th the point is that we started doing that. And then right now, living in, staying in Chicago, I, I was doing a telemedicine clinic in, in Wisconsin, up way up north by Green Bay, uh, all the way down to Peoria, all the way in South Indiana. Like, you know, I can cover multiple states and people across these like huge spots have access to me. They, we, we had a physician, we had a clinic in uh, Maui that had no access to physiatrists. We have someone in California doing telemedicine there. Now, all of a sudden, you have a, a quick visit. The patient is satisfied. We get the prescription done, the note done. Win, 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 right? So in those cases, it's unbelievably successful. Um, and I think there's, there's definitely for some people who are homebound. I have many patients that are homebound. They can't leave the house. They don't have transportation. They have to, they have to basically pull downstairs. It, it makes so much sense because those are the people who end up creating, making the ER as their primary care physician. And then when you go to the ER, they're almost always admitted or they end up leaving, leading everything to the last minute. Like when they're really sick and I have people in my family, oh, I don't want to see a doctor until they're like, oh my God, I have to go see the doctor now. Forget the doctor, I go to the hospital. So that's why the cost of care is so high in the US is because we don't have engaged. I mean, if I had the perfect world and actually we're trying to create a perfect uh, company, we just hired pharmacists. We have pharmacists in our group that are basically just there to kind of look at coordination of care from discharge to the Hoffman Hospital to the nursing home to home. And then reconciling medications, you know, because a lot of obviously errors happen during that transition. How do we reconcile that? How do you reduce that? I can't do it myself. I need to hire people like you, you know, and that's what we're doing. But long story, telemedicine works 
but I think the the broad use of it, which obviously is not during COVID, is never going to come back that way. Uh, I think for specialty care and for certain populations, it's a lifesaver. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, we went from before COVID, no telehealth. Then we went to, to COVID, all telehealth. And now we're kind of like clawing back to like, you know, some people are like, oh, telehealth. No, I, I mean, like you mentioned, it's like in the middle. Like we, I don't know why in our healthcare system, we go from one extreme to the other, you know, getting paid for every single service then not getting paid for things or just getting, you know, it's just like this weird thing in our, this dichotomy in our healthcare system. We never actually look at the middle ground. It's one or the other. And I completely agree with you. I think in the end, the hybrid model is the one that's going to win out um, just because it makes the most sense, right? Like you mentioned, there are certain patients that it's very hard for them to get to you. I mean, like I worked in, I've worked in oncology my whole entire career. And, you know, there were so many patients where a televisit would have been really helpful for them, especially in the middle when they're not coming and getting infused with us because, you know, you're not exposing them to uh, unnecessary, like, you know, illnesses. They're able to, you know, they're really frail. They're really tired all the time. Either they're not, you know, they're nauseated. They're, they can't make it to the bathroom a lot of times. You know, there's so many things that happen and, you know, we're by asking them to come in, but like, you know, th that'd be great. But, you know, the people that live close by and are healthier and so on and so forth, they can come in and see us. So that's the way, like you mentioned, that's the way it should be done. It should be done by a case by case basis. It's not the answer that people want to hear because people like to put people in column like, no, this and this. But it, that's what medicine is. I'm sorry, guys. Like medicine is all about case by case. Like we don't treat everyone exactly the same. We have to take on what we know about you and treat you the best we can as a whole person. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think the flexibility of it is the important part. That's the word that I like using a lot is flexibility. I think a lot of times like things just become so like regimented and, and I understand that because you always have bad players. You always have people who will break the laws or break, you know, the barriers and try to like, you know, gain the system. That's always going to happen. But I think overall, if there's flexibility in telemedicine and not just for rural and, uh, you know, certain things like someone doesn't have a, a, a phone that has a camera, it can do audio. Um, you know, those are kind of things that on also be incentivized, not just fee for service where with the model we're in, but value is, and that's where we're actually a company as a company. We're looking at that. We don't just do things for fee for service. Sure. We may make money off that, but when I started doing telemedicine right away, I started doing data on, okay, so how many ER visits are we, are we, uh, avoiding? How many falls are we avoiding? How many, what is the average time between this and this? And, you know, those data points are important because as we're getting ready for the next system, the value base will only get paid per the quality of care we provide, we can't just go by, oh, I did 10,000 telemedicine visits, nothing to do with that. I saved the system $100 million. It's way more important. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's where, I mean, that's where value-based care is trying to get to, right? Like they we're trying, it, healthcare is weird, right? You know, we, we're looking at things that we're trying to solve, right? I mean, we're trying to uh, prevent, right? We're, it's all about prevention. I mean, we should be all about prevention, but people can argue that the current system is all about sick care, but uh, but yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. I mean, just like, you know, you were mentioning, you know, like people in your family or like even myself, right? Like we wait till the last possible moment and I joke with people, right? Like everyone knows their co-pays. Everyone knows exactly how much the ER visit costs. Everyone knows exactly how much that ambulance ride is going to cost them because that's just like, you know, it's just so expensive. It's just also, it's not convenient, right? Healthcare is just not convenient for us. And, you know, that's why I like the word you said, like flexibility, like we need to make it more flexible so that people... Yeah, it would be great to see everyone in person. I'm not going to disagree with that. But if you make it flexible and easy for patients to get to see you, we can solve a lot of issues like you mentioned, like you guys are doing, right? Solving ER visits. I mean, decreasing ER visits, decreasing falls, all these things. Um, it's not a perfect system, but we're never going to get to a perfect system. I would agree. But, oh, go ahead. 
So I was saying that, you know, this kind of stuff also breeds innovation. And that's where, you know, you are in that space now. It's like, you know, you if you didn't have these problems, then you wouldn't have to find solutions for that. Um, I, uh, I'm i always trying to look for as a innovator slash entrepreneur, like problems, uh, you know, falls are a problem, wounds are a problem, uh, over polypharmacy is a problem. And there's definitely a solution for that. Maybe, you know, you and I haven't thought about it, or someone else hasn't thought about it, but I, I what I have to come back to that is, Hopefully, you know, continuing the future as well. I talk, uh, talk to a lot of uh, startups, and I'm an advisor for a few of them. Is I tell them like, you know, you need to, you know, sure you're a tech person and you're, you know, you Stanford and Harvard and that kind of stuff, and you have a pedigree and everything, but you really have to get the providers engaged because they they will give you the feedback that will make you successful. Because you're not going to have one solution that fixes the whole healthcare system. There's no such thing. Uh, you might be able to help a tiny part of it. Uh, but you have to get the provider's input, get them to try it out, give you feedback. You will save a lot of time and effort. Yeah, no. And then also the other thing that I tell the healthcare companies too, I mean, health tech startups is uh, the providers are the ones that are going to be pushing people to your solution. If you mm -hmm. don't make the solution easy for them and only easy for the mm -hmm. patient, mm -hmm. they're not going to push it. I mean, I can, you probably have seen this too, like drawers and rooms with branded like iPads and branded like equipment that just doesn't get used because it's just too mm -hmm. too uh, cumbersome right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yep but yeah comp uh, comp compliance is a big part of it you know i think uh the one thing that we've also noticed because we do a lot of pilots is that uh it could be the best tech in the world it's the most advanced thing in the world but if um if you don't make it easy like i said uh the compliance drops down significantly and then the value goes with that it's like oh yeah i mean i love the fact that it does that but it's like making me adding all this extra work for me, why would I do it then? Even if it helps a patient out. We've actually had straight up nurses tell us that I'd rather not do it, even though it's gonna help my patient. I'm like, that's a weird thing to say outright, but at the same time, I get it. You know, you're overworked, you want stuff to make it easy for you and not just add on more tech, more tabs, more clicks, more this. Uh, and you know, there's no perfect solution for that, but that's why you need the human human capital. Yeah, no, definitely. So, I mean, we. We can kind of jump into like the entrepreneurship, like, you know, a lot of sure. medical people are not, we're not taught anything business in school or anything like that, right? What kind mm -hmm. of brought you towards the entrepreneurship route? Uh, mostly my parents. My parents were, uh, they started their own company years ago. I grew up around a private, private company. I uh, got to see the ins and outs, ups and downs, the marketing, the rebranding and like the, all the stuff, pricing. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting to kind of see it growing up. I never thought I was going to do that, but uh, then, you know, I became a physician and then I realized that I still have some of those aspirations of building my own. Um, so, uh, and it takes special courage to do that. Cause you know, I think if I asked my wife, she would do it, she would never do it because she likes that, you know, big company, standard paycheck, W2, like all the benefits, 401k, I'm more of a, you know, I need to build it. Uh, so that's why, you know, I've always been interested in that. And, uh, I think all of us have a little bit of entrepreneurship in us. But I think it depends on what can we fall back on. You know, I think most of us would like to have a paycheck and not be, you know, poor forever. So uh, that a lot of times, like, you know, that 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 is the barrier, you know, like, how do I give up this full time job and do that? So usually anybody was like asking for like advice about entrepreneurship. I'm like, you know what, keep your job, but think about some ideas on the side and, you know, work on them and see what sticks. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. And that's the advice that I was getting to when I was starting my startup is, hey, don't just I mean, like. You know, we, I think one of the other things is like, uh, we're fortunate enough to be in careers that are, we're, we're high earning careers, right? I mean, there's no secret about that. And I think that also kind of, I think that also kind of plays into some of our, like being, I shouldn't say being scared, but being cautious, 
I think that's a good way of putting like hey, we don't want to just jump in um but yeah no um so do you mind i mean do you mind saying what your parents did like what business did they run oh yeah so, so they set up a private school oh, um, awesome. and they also got into real estate and things like that uh but uh they're, they're, they're educators and, and back home in pakistan i mean that's like my really uh home where i grew up uh, uh there's a significant lack of like uh government or really organized education system and a lot of times it's private practice private actually not practice but private um universities and colleges so they noticed a big gap um and they decided to start that up and um it's been great for them yeah no that's amazing i was actually born in pakistan i don't know if you mentioned i mentioned that before but yeah i think so so i completely i, I know exactly what you're talking about but um i do wanted to touch on um like how did you what kind of started this like what gave you this idea? Like, was it something that you saw during your residency or fellowship? Like, you're like, oh, I need to create this. Was like, there's some like something that made you start down this road? Uh, yeah, definitely. It was definitely in our training. We noticed the lack of uh, care being provided, and uh, most people have no idea about this. But an average uh, nursing home uh, has a thirty percent readmission rate. So if you send, you know, th three people, one of them will come back to the hospital, which is insane numbers. You know. Um, so obviously that's a lot of being money's being spent there. There's a lot of focus on regulations and managing it. And, uh, because they're further down the pipeline, they don't get the best doctors. They don't get the best technology. They don't get pharmacists. Everything is outsourced, the nurses, all that stuff. But at the same time, these people are still sick So realize that unless you act on it and go in and help them out, but you need, you need basically you need human capital, you need manpower. Uh, so we ended up basically. Uh, Dr. Patel, Dr. Uh, Matt Ray, we, they both started the co-founder of the company. I was really early on, the first like three or four doctors. And then, you know, we just kind of took it from there from just three, four of us and to like 600 plus now. But I think we found that niche of an area where there's a lot of money being spent um, and the quality of care is pretty poor and we can make a big impact. And then again, we were very data driven. So we started looking at readmission rates, uh, falls, hospital costs, that kind of stuff. And we proved it again and again that guess what, duh, like having providers help patients out helps. It, it definitely improves outcomes. You can't just rely on nurses. You know, they're awesome. They work hard, but they're not physicians. They can't figure this stuff out. They're not pharmacists. Uh, so you have to have that insight in the, the physician side. No, I completely agree with you. I mean, nurses, nurses do so much great things. They do things that I could never do. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much put on them already. Like they're already taking care of so many patients. They're already making sure they're getting the right medication. And then on top of that, you want them to do like all these diagnostic diagnostic. It just is, it's just, it's just not going to work. Right. It just isn't. And like, if anyone's ever been in a nursing home, I don't think many people have experience. Thank, hopefully, thankfully that don't have too much experience in nursing homes or these, these nurses are taking care of multiple. It's not like they're just one-on-one -on -one with one patient. They're like with so many people. And then also transition of care. I mean, I don't have to tell you how bad transition of care is. Right. I mean, I remember when I was in school, like, what now 10 12 years ago they're like oh we're we're almost there we almost got it figured out and we still have it not figured out it i mean it's a simple idea of transitioning of you know from the hospital to the nursing home and getting everything right but it's just so complex that and a lot of people that are like to your point initially getting clinicians involved early like if you're not a clinician you don't understand the complexities of such a simple thing as just transitioning transitioning care yeah, I mean, a, a classic example is that most, well, first we said no one's gone to the nursing home is right, but I recommend that people go to the nursing home. They should volunteer. I mean, I used to be a CNA. That was my first job in college. That's where I got the experience in uh, in nursing homes. But um, I think especially the entrepreneurs who are looking at the space, I mean, go in. 
Uh, I was talking to some uh, yesterday and they basically like spend a few weeks in the nursing home to find out what how, what happens here. What There's a huge opportunity in this space where, you know, people are heavily focusing on outpatient, heavily focusing on, on the hospital and the hospital sales cycle is insanely long and to break in and to get the pilots. But a lot of time nursing homes are much more open to some of these innovations. That's where we are in the space. Uh, but uh, to go back at it, that basically like, you know, everybody, most people in the health tech space know about Epic and Cerner and the big EMR systems out there, eClinical works with Outpatient and Athena, those are big, big systems out there. But none of them integrate with the nursing home's EMR. None of them, not a single one. So if Epic, for example, someone gets discharged from a hospital to a nursing home, I as a provider have no access to looking at the medication reconciliation. Now, they have found a way around it. They take a file, a yeah. paper file, they PDF that, they send it over, maybe it'll come, maybe it won't come. It's a scribble on there, discharge medication or continue the current dose. Uh, okay, like, and then I have no access to a pharmacist. The pharmacist is not talking to the pharmacist. There's no like transition. Uh, so we have found the solution for that by basically taking over. It's called transitional care management. Our team is responsible in the back end, an extra level of person, a care, a pharmacist, a social worker that does the work. Because we cannot rely on the facilities to do it. We cannot rely on the providers or the uh, or the patients to do it, the family members to do it. They don't understand. Okay. So we take it on ourselves. If we take the risk on it, we say, we'll do it. We'll reconcile the medication. We'll con confirm that the transition is happening. We'll take it on us. So we're, we're getting ready in the next couple of years or so to take on risk. Risk is basically that if you do a good job, give us money. If you don't, we'll give you back money. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, I think that that's the one thing that a lot of people don't realize about transitional care. Like you kind of highlighted a little bit, but like, you know, when somebody comes in from the nursing home, you're, you have no records and you're getting like this, you have to like call the nursing home, get a fax of their MAR, which is basically a, a, a timeline of when they got their medications and what medications they got. And everyone is different everything is different and sometimes you're missing pages sometimes they're i mean sometimes they're just too busy to send it to you and you have to keep calling them over and over again and you know this person might have had a stroke and you're trying to figure out did they have any blood thinners or things like that like you know we're dealing with like really time time sensitive things and you know to your point it's just it should be easy but it's not and i and then and to and what you guys are doing is exactly what we need we need a specific like group of people or somebody that's taking care of both ends, the transition from the hospital to the nursing home and vice versa, because then you have people that are invested in it, in the whole thing. Right now, it's just like the hospital is just trying to take care of them. And I shouldn't say push them out the door, but like they're just getting them well enough to get them back to the nursing home. The nursing home is just trying to take care of them. And if, if it's something that's way above their, their breadth of what they can handle, they're going to send them back to the hospital. Like there's no connection between the two though, right? Exactly. Uh, without a doubt, I mean, obviously, like, you know, these things require tech as well that can help. And then there's a couple of uh, products out there right now that are helping with this transition of care and to see, you know, to uh, look at the, the medications usage. And but uh, my, my story doesn't tell you about is I have an ER friend. I asked uh, him, like, you know, what happens when you get a nursing patient of the nursing home? You know, what do you do? It's like direct admit. It's like, I'm like, why? It's like, well, I don't know, like, what happened with them? I have no notes. I have no medications, no imaging, no doctor notes, nothing at all. I'm like, this could be sepsis or it could be, I don't know, like a, a cold. I mean, they're sick. They're nonverbal. <laughs> they're basically no family. There's like nothing I can do. So that's a direct admit. Um, but, you know, I think we started working on some solutions for that. And we are working on it. Basically, like every patient that gets discharged in the nursing home, we're working on a system that auto-generates. Um, a, a, a discharge kind of tra transfer summary that says patient name, diagnosis, 
current medications, current vitals, most recent labs. And my, my ER buddy is like, oh my gosh, that'd be amazing. Cause I'll just have something, right? Oh my God. Yeah. I would, I mean, as a pharmacist, even like, I would love that. Cause a lot of times, you know, we're asked like, Hey, what do you, do you know what they got? And they're like, Oh, can you call them and figure out what the, what, what medications have gotten because it could be medication related, right? They're somnolent. Like, did they get too many pain meds or did they, did they, are they not taking the right medications or like what's going on? Right? Like it, it's just like this. And I honestly, if I got something like that, I would, I mean, I'm smiling right now. It would be, make me so happy just because it would honestly cut down hours. Literally people don't realize this takes hours out of our day to get something so similar as just a medication list or just a general history, like a past medical history of what's going on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited and because <laughs> I know the I know the value of what it is. So you mentioned uh, to you, you talk to healthcare startups and your advisor for a bunch of them. And one of the things that um, they struggle with is getting in the door to like talking to clinicians and such. Like, what do you what kind of advice do you give to people if they're starting a health tech startup and they want to they, they want to reach out to physicians or any clinic or hospitals or whatever they're trying to reach out to? I mean, there's obviously top leaders out there. You know, people are very, um, very um, active on LinkedIn or Twitter and, you know, things like that. And obviously you have things like incubators and there's quite a few of them around in which you can actually go and mingle with people. And many physicians actually offer mentorship there as well. Uh, then you have the big hospitals. I mean, the big academic places like uh, Northwestern or, you know, Booth. And they have different programs. They have mentorship there as well. Uh, you know, I think it's really getting yourself out there and talking to people and connecting, uh, even if it's like a, a random LinkedIn message. And I get some of those and I'm like, sure, I'll talk to you. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of time, but I can give you some feedback and I make a connection. This recent connection I made just yesterday, uh, maybe actually a week ago, a phenomenal product. It could be a game changer for the nursing home setting. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be involved early on is uh, they approached a physician randomly because of LinkedIn uh, post. And then... That physician is like, you know what, I'm not in that space, but I know someone who is, and then they connected them to me. And then next thing you know, they're signing a contract with their company now. It's, it can go that fast. But main thing I think is like, don't think any idea is too dumb. Uh, you know, I think if solves one problem, don't think of a problem that solves everything. Uh, and then, you know, just get, get feedback from people who are in the space. Yeah. And, and get early feedback too, right? Like don't build the product completely and then try to get feedback, you know, try to solicit that feedback early and often. And I think that's why I tell people too, you'd be surprised as, as to how open, um, the medical community is because we want the help, right? We're looking for the help. And if you reach out with, and if, and if you have good intentions and very rarely are you going to get turned down. I mean, people will give you five, 10, 15 minutes just to, just to talk to them. Right. Right. Exactly. I had a call today in the morning with a, a physician who might actually end up seeing this, but, uh, um, but basically like it was something about a subject matter that I'm really good at and she's just not an expert at that. And then I started talking about it and she's like, you know what, this is exactly what I want to hear because we're trying to make a product that could help with this or at least in the beginning stages. And then that between people as well, you know, you'll, you'll find a community of, uh, entrepreneurs that can help each other out. So I think that's a part of this that I like a lot so far, like, you know, getting in touch with you and talking and being out there and talking to podcasts and that might open more opportunities that I've never even thought about, you know, and I think that's, that's, it's okay to be out there, you know, uh, and discuss things, even if they sound not so ready, you know, in your head. And that's the fear people have, like, well, someone's going to take my idea and run away with it. Uh, it's possible, but I think your next idea might be better than this idea. Yeah. And then, I mean, no, hundred um, percent. And if they took your idea and ran with it and made it successful, you probably, probably wouldn't have been successful. Honestly, I mean, it, it sounds bad to say, but like if somebody else can steal your idea and 
get success with it before you, that means that you probably didn't have it all fleshed out in the beginning anyways. Uh, but yeah, no, about the community part, I love it. Um, when I was building my startup, I wish I had this community that I just didn't, like I was kind of like on my own, kind of trying to figure out what the hell to do. Like I didn't, I didn't know how to get funding or anything. Like I had no idea what that, what I was doing. And uh, the community aspect is so awesome because not only that, because like, you know, in healthcare, I mean, you know this, right? Sometimes we get in this, our own echo chambers and all we hear is all the bad that's going on. Like, oh man, this sucks. This is bad. This is bad. Oh, CMS cut rates or this is going on or they're forcing us to do this or the EMR is terrible. But when you get out of like our little bubble and talk to people that are trying to help, actively trying to help us, it gives me hope because they're like, okay, I'm not by myself. I'm not crazy, right? Going back to the point of, you know, just acknowledging the problem and existing and telling people like, yeah, this is a problem, but let's try to fix it. And the same thing happens with us clinicians, right? If we, I found that talking to other people, technologists that are not in healthcare at all, like that are helping healthcare, but not healthcare backgrounds is really refreshing because A, they come at it from a different viewpoint. Like they're, they're not jaded like we are <laughs> at this point. And also, you know, it's just nice to see people that are helping and are really, really trying to help. Mm -hmm. Yep. Sorry about that. My son just walked in. <laughs> no worries at all. That that's right. That right means we gotta end soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, one last one last question um, for you. Like, what advice would you have given yourself when you when you started down this journey? Like, when you were in med school or whatever that you know now. Like, what would you have told yourself back then? That's a great question. I think surrounding myself with entrepreneurs would have been the, probably the best thing. Uh, I felt like you know I did that and I did a pretty good job of that, but um, I should have been involved with the incubators earlier. Uh, you know, uh, gone to more conferences, people like-minded. Uh, but I think it's probably because I was so busy in my healthcare career and that kind of stuff, but I wish I'd done that earlier. Um, and I wish I had met you earlier. <laughs> no, that's, that, you're very, very kind. Um, but thank you, Azlan. I really appreciate your time. Uh, this was an amazing conversation. So thank you so much. And yeah, have a good rest of your day, man. I appreciate it, man. Talk to you soon. Thank Bye. you.